welcome. This is a Vascular Forum interview. Hello, and welcome to another Vascular Forum interview. My name is Melina Vega de Cenia. Today, we're going to discuss the concept of sac regression as a paradigm shift of the measure of success of EVAR. And to analyze and interpret this concept in depth, we have with us Dr. Hans Verhagen, who has just stepped out of the shoes of president of the ESVS, an internationally renowned expert in endovascular surgery, professor in chief of vascular surgery at the Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, where we recently had a fabulous comeback of an on-site ESVS annual meeting. Welcome to the ESVS podcast, Hans. Thank you very much for making the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Melina. The pleasure is all mine. It has been one complicated year to be president of the ESVS. Are you glad it's over or are you missing it already? <laughs> well, Melina, to be honest, I'm actually missing it. It's been a wonderful time. Uh, it's been complicated, but that was part of the fun, at least for me. I miss the focus of working with a group on, on certain subjects, like the annual meeting, but also on these podcasts on the masterclass, all the big things that go on in um, ESVS. I'm missing the contact with, well, with all the people, but especially with Exco, people like yourself. It, it was an absolute fabulous and wonderful year. I'm struggling to survive. No, I'm just kidding. But it, it was just wonderful. But it's also good that people in Exco stay for a couple of years and then make place for new blood and new enthusiasm and new ideas. So it's been a wonderful time and it is what it is. So uh, we move on. I have to say, as a member of Exco, as editor-in-chief of Basketball Forum, it has been wonderful to see you at the helm. You've been a really good president. Well, I hope so. We'll see in a couple of years. <laughs> okay, let's dig into today's topic. EVAR is a well-established technique practiced worldwide with its indications, its anatomical requirements, and well-reported outcomes. The Achilles heel, compared to open repair, is the mid- and long-term durability, with endoleaks, twice the risk of reintervention, a five-fold risk of aneurysm rupture, consistent through the first 10 years of follow-up. Now, the definitions of lasting success vary from the absence of rupture, which really is the ultimate reason for prophylactic aneurysm repair, to freedom from reintervention, or freedom from any kind of endoleak, or freedom from endoleaks with sac enlargement. And now we have not only absence of sac enlargement, but effectively sac regression. What's your opinion, Hans? What is the most accurate or desirable definition of EVAR success? That's actually a really interesting point that you uh, bring up. Originally, the purpose of EVAR was to prevent death from rupture. That was the original plan when it started. Obviously, that's probably not the optimal definition. I would say prevention from rupture would be much better because that is actually what EVAR is supposed to do. But now that we're years further, I think it's uh, actually quite important to what price do we do this? And, and I'm not mentioning money, but I'm mentioning how often do you have to follow these patients up? How many secondary interventions do you have to do? How hard does everyone has to work to keep on having this good result? So I'm not sure, and I'm not the one that should dictate what is the new definition of treatment success for our EVAR, but I would say it is definitely preventing rupture. It should have something like minimal surveillance. It should have something in it, not more reinterventions than after open surgery. I guess that would point out towards the right definition of treatment success. Whether there's endoleaks or not, eventually doesn't matter as long as you don't rupture. So that is also important, but not the ultimate goal. 
So I think the three that I just mentioned are the most important ones that should be included in what is the definition of treatment success of the environment. Yeah, so it's not only survival, it's quality of life of the patient and ultimately also sustainability of the health system, if you will. Yeah, yeah, which actually is a flexible entity, isn't it? Sustainability of the healthcare system. What we mean is that it should be, you know, money well spent. And I totally agree on that. But that's a, also a, like a bit of a fluid material, right? Because there's different now that it is in, in a couple of years. But uh, in general, we, we all mean the same. It should be affordable, sustainable, uh, and it should definitely add value to the life of the patient. Yeah, that's a, a great sum up. Let's define sac regression, sac stability and sac progression. So that is five millimeters or more in the diameter down or less than five millimeter change, that would be stability, or five millimeters or more up, that would be sac progression. And we're talking about aneurysm maximum diameter at the time of repair. Or is it the last CD scan before EVAR or the first month postoperative control CD scan? Which one should be the baseline we should be comparing this with? Yeah, I think we should compare it with the first postoperative CT scan, which then basically by definition should be the, you know, 30-day CT scan. Uh, that, that should be the basis. And then, of course, you know, five millimeter is kind of hard to measure, isn't it? Because everybody measures a little bit different. The inter-observer variability of diameter measurements for AAAs is almost 10%, like 8% or so. So uh, everybody measures differently. So we should compare to the first post-operative CT and keep on comparing it to that one as well as the ones before, because that's a mistake often made that it's only compared to the last one, which is usually like one or two years before, and not comparing it either to the first one or the ones in between. So shrinkage and then gradual growth would not be noticed because it's always a couple of millimeters, not more than that. So it's kind of the same. Well, if you look at the bigger picture, it may actually grow. So yeah, baseline one month, and then compare it to all the measurements and not only to the just to the one that was uh, just preceding it. Well, you're talking about the bigger picture. And nowadays, EVAR is followed basically with ultrasound, and that has a greater margin of error. So again, you're talking about not only compared with the last ultrasound, but go back to the original CD scan or any interspersed CD scans in the middle. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, I do. And um, it's absolutely correct that duplex is more operator dependent, of course. But the measurements with duplex are usually a little bit smaller than if you measure it with a CT. Part of that is because the original the duplex criteria were inner to inner, and now we do outer to outer. So you add the wall, which is a couple of millimeter times two. So yeah, it's, it's hard to completely compare those measurements. And I think that a lot of people will do mainly do duplex and then once every couple of years do a CT and then just uh, realize that that one will probably be a few millimeters bigger than the duplex and still is the same. But yeah, duplex is a great way to do surveillance as long as you realize that uh, you cannot see the ceiling zones and you can only see the diameter and some endoleaks. So it's, it's limited as well as limited because it's so operator dependent, but it's a great way of, of doing surveillance, of course. What about shrinkage or change in shape in more proximal or distal areas of the aneurysm sac, not so much specifically in the maximum diameter area? Is this something we should be looking at as well? It's been proven that um, measuring volume is much more sensitive to changes than diameters, exactly for the reasons you just mentioned. You see it in a much bigger picture than only the maximum diameter. The issue still is that you need quite sophisticated uh, post-processing equipment to actually do the volume measurements. 
that would take far too much time to do that during your outpatient clinic. As a research tool, it's fantastic. And again, much more sensitive to change. But from a practical standpoint of view, it's still far off. It will be a couple of years before that can be done completely automatic. And for now, it's just maximum diameter, I guess. But do you think in the future, we'll end up doing routine volumes? What I hoped for was that uh, 3D ultrasound would kind of help us with that. Then have a defined volume area where you're interested in, which with this kind of technique is actually quite difficult because it's not big enough, but maybe in the, in the near future. And then you would be able to compare volume of one versus volume of the last year, but it's not there. So the progress over the last couple of years in this part has been very, very small. So I don't think within a couple of years, we will do routine volume measurement as a follow-up strategy. Okay, let's move on to endoleaks. There is consensus that endoleaks type 1A or B and 3, which involve incomplete sealing, proximal, distal, or intergraft, should always be repaired as they involve pressurized blood flow entering the aneurysm sac. But there is no such consensus for the management of type 2 endoleaks or their poorly understood type 5 endoleaks or endotension. Let's start with type 2 endoleaks. What is your experience and your current management strategy when faced with one of these? Well, Melina, you, you may not uh, be aware of this, but I have a very strong feeling. on. I am. Type two. Oh, you are. Okay, great. Uh, on type 2 endoleak management and the importance of it. Uh, we have great debates on this because it's very, very controversial. Every site you pick is actually quite controversial. So in general, people think they're very important and worth treating, especially in growing aneurysm sac. Uh, that's actually in the guidelines as well. I have a bit of a different view. I think it's far more important to be sure that it's actually a type 2 endoleak because a very big part of the type 2 endoleaks are actually type 1s or type 3s. So it's far more important that you know for sure that the proximal and distal seal is okay and the overlap between the several stents are absolutely okay. If that is the case, I don't care too much about type 2 endoleaks. And that's for a variety of reasons. So one of the reasons is that it is uh, more than 99 out of 100. It's low pressure. They can bleed a lot, but it's still low pressure. Their importance is shown very well if you treat uh, ruptured aneurysms by EVAR. The vast majority of these patients have several type 2 endoleaks. Uh, you put it in EVAR and the vast majority survives without any problem. That must be low pressure, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't work because there's nothing to tamponate it because there, there's a hole in the sac. So it should all go into the retroperitoneum if it's high pressure. Another reason why I think they're not that important is that treatment strategies are very, very, very unsuccessful. And all the research that has done with it never showed any survival benefit if you treat type 2 endoleaks. So the importance of type 2 endoleaks by itself is, in my opinion, extremely low, not worth looking at, as long as you know for sure that we're talking about the type 2. And like I said, in general, the problem is somewhere else. And I guess that it would be a better name to have type 2 endoleak named sentinel endoleak, just like cancer therapy. It points out that there is a problem. But treating the sentinel it doesn't really cure the patient, right? It just warns you, hey, there's something wrong here. So how do you ascertain what type of endoleak it is? So you find a small endoleak in the control CD scan. And what are your steps? What do you do exactly? Okay. Well, as long as there's a stable or a shrinking sac, it's absolutely no big deal, right? I, I don't even look at it. If the sac is growing and there's a type 2, which there often is, that then becomes a very time-consuming matter because what I do is I 
I see these patients a lot as a second opinion. So what I ask the referral surgeon to do is to send me the last preoperative CT, the first postoperative CT, and then the last CT before they have done something. The reason is that I want to know what the quality of the ceiling zones is, what the measurements were. I want to know what was put in and the exact sizes. And then on the last CT, you can see whether there's actually still room for this endograft to expand or if it's fully expanded and may actually not be sealing at all. So that's the beginning of my strategy. If I'm absolutely convinced that the sealing zones are fine, I don't treat the type 2 endoleak, not when it's growing. I just don't treat it. And there's a variety of reasons for it. One of them, but we may come later to it, is that the treatment itself is not without risks at all. And the benefit has never, ever been shown. It has never been shown that it actually works. So I think it's less dangerous to do nothing than to treat the type 2 endoleak. So all these management strategies of type 2 endoleaks that there are, there's a variety of them. There's the inferior mesenterical lumbar artery, selective embolization, the sac thrombosis through endovascular direct translumbar injection of thrombinoglue, the laparoscopic clipping. Have you used any of these? Well, I didn't because um, I've had this philosophy for many, many, many years. So I didn't see the need to treat them. So I haven't actually treated the type 2 for, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so. I am very well aware what people can do. I've seen it. I've seen people doing it. It's actually quite a complex and difficult procedure, whatever uh, route you're taking. But it all doesn't make sense to me. What I've also seen is the complications from it. And some of them are actually really, really horrible, as in spinal cord ischemia, colonic ischemia, infection of the aneurysm sac, which quite often is some sort of death sentence for the patient. So I'm still not convinced that doing anything is, uh, is better than, than just leave it as long as you are sure, as sure as you can be, that we're talking about a type 2 and not a, a type 1 or 3, or what happens quite often if an endograft is uh, implanted to, well, several years ago, is that you have those stitch hole bleedings. And I've done quite a few conversions. And it's uh, quite surprising and worrisome sometimes that some of these grafts actually have uh, stitch hole bleedings that are just too small for a CT scan or duplex or whatever, or MRI or whatever imaging modality you use uh, to pick them up. But they're still there. The so-called slow flow endoleaks, they're definitely there. Furthermore, I'm a true believer in postural uh, dependent endoleaks. So... The problem with our endoleak management is that if a patient's in the CT scan, he's always flat on his back, right? Duplex, always flat on his back. Operating room, always flat on his back. If we do an intervention in whatever room, always flat on his back. So it doesn't mean that if the patient stands up, sneezes, bends over, cuffs, whatever, the endoleak is still not there. So there's a lot imaging-wise that we just can't see, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. That's a very interesting concept. And that actually links with papers we're publishing lately in the Vascular Forum about uh, the research that's being done in Strasbourg with endograft fatigue, the analysis of the explants, that they're finding fatigue, small tears in the fabric, especially related with the stitches and the stent raising uh, the material. That's something we'll probably find out a lot about in the next few years. Right, right, right. It's actually fantastic work what they're doing. It's, it's unique what's happening there in Strasbourg. And 
we can only, I mean, we should support this because eventually we will probably find that there's a lot more wrong with some of those endograms that are implanted a couple of years ago than we uh, thought there was. Going back to um, type 2 endoleaks, then you, you don't follow them. So you don't revise your attitude every certain amount of months, 6 to 12 months, uh, and decide whether the SAC is regressing or progressing. Right. Well, I, I keep those patients under surveillance. So usually I rescan them about a year later. And that also teaches you a lot because some of them, and that's a big surprise to me, actually a significant amount of them grow much faster than the natural history would. So an untreated aneurysm usually grows like a couple of millimeters per year, right? Depending on the size. But some of these patients with an endograft and some sort of endoleak, they grow like a centimeter in a year. Well, that by itself will also, for me, be very convincing that we're not talking about type two. Type twos are there all the time and they either shrink the aneurysm, they stabilize the aneurysm or grow but they can never grow the aneurysm for like a centimeter, especially not because they're usually there for a long time with kind of a stable sac, and then it starts growing. That is very unlikely that that same type 2 endoleak suddenly has so much more pressure that the aneurysm starts growing significantly. So if I see them after, say, 12 months, and they have grown like a centimeter, that basically proves that my thought that there was nothing wrong with the ceiling zones was wrong. So that could mean that I either do an extension of the ceiling zones. Distally, it's usually quite easy. Proximally, that usually means that you go to a fever, or that may be a reason to convert the patient. There's an underlying theory that an aneurysm that has been treated and is no longer pressurized, then the biology changes. And if they start getting a high-pressure endoleak, they will grow a lot quicker because that wall has changed and is no longer, let's say, used to, to the daily pressure, right? Yeah, that's actually a very old theory, especially in the beginning of EVAR. I've seen plenty of patients with endoleaks after a couple of years that start growing slowly and nothing dramatically happens. I'm sure there will be sudden deaths with patients without growth. And that's probably the case in what you explained, that they have been depressurized for a long time. And then for whatever reason, there's a serious pressure into the second, they kind of almost immediately rupture. Those patients will be very, very hard to treat, right? Because you don't know who's going to be it. And again, those type 2 endoleaks are there usually for a long, long time. The other issue with type 2 endoleaks is, is that it's very dependent on the way you do your imaging, whether you will pick them up or not. It has everything to do with what kind of contrast you use, how long you wait, what the leg time for your CT is, whether you do MR or you do contrast-enhanced ultrasound, which not everybody is comfortable doing. It really has so many variables that saying there's no type 2 endoleak in this aneurysm is hard to say. Interestingly enough, with this particular subject is that we've done quite a few studies with MR looking at non-shrinking aneurysms after EVAR without endoleaks on CT scanning. So we did blood pool agent MR, which means uh, you put in a contrast agent that stays in the body for say an hour instead of for a couple of seconds, right? And the interesting uh, findings was that the majority of these patients actually have contrast in the sac if you wait like 45 minutes to an hour after, after injection of blood pool agent. Where it exactly comes from still stays unclear. Some of that is porosity of the graft. Some of it is slow flow endoleaks, type 2 endoleaks. 
Some seem to come from the wall itself, the blood flow to the aneurysm wall itself, and then kind of leaks out into the aneurysm sac. So that's definitely a matter that we should look in more deeply. A stable sac, with or without type 2 endoleak, has recently been described to be a risk factor for worse five-year survival compared to patients with sac regression. And the sac stability is starting to be considered not benign and possibly as negative as sac enlargement. Now, this is new. Do you think it will influence our attitude and management strategies or follow-up surveillance programs in the near future? And should it? Yeah, this definitely is a new concept. And I was really surprised when I think the first publication on this was in 2018 in the JVS, where they found that people with a shrinking sac had worse all-cause mortality or, or better survival, I should say, after five years than patients with either a stable sac or an increasing sac diameter. I kind of didn't understand what that meant. And then either same year or 2019, also JVS, bigger study was done, different group in the States, where they had split into three groups. So patients with a growing sac, stable sac, or a shrinking sac, which was actually measured at one year. So post-operative CT and then one year. And after that, you stratify them in either growing sac, stable sac, or shrinking sac. And then they looked at survival at 10 years, and they saw really big differences, significant differences in survival. Interesting part is that the patients with a either stable or growing sac didn't usually die from a rupture. So there was something else. And that makes it even more interesting, especially from an academic standpoint of view. So there may be something else. Maybe this is a, a sign of a certain genetic background or inflammatory background or something that we don't know of. It is really interesting. And we all kind of know that a shrinking sac is fantastic. One of the reasons, not only for survival that we didn't know, but also because it can bring down our surveillance program. And that I think is really important. So if the question is, do you think this concept of sac shrinkage can influence our practice? Yes, most certainly it will because these patients do really well and they don't need a lot of secondary interventions. So their surveillance program can be slowed down in contrast to the stable or the increasing sac. I'm not sure if we should say that a stable sac is as bad as an increase in sac size. I think there's definitely a middle line here and it's better than a growing sac, but definitely not as good as a shrinking sac. Yeah. Do you think the only or main factor influencing this sac progression or regression is pressure, or you pointed at it. Do you think wall and thrombus biology inflammatory phenomena might play a role? And in that sense, what about inflammation may be related to foreign bodies, in this case, an endograft, each with different materials. We have metals, we have some sort of fabric. Do you think that could play a role? Yeah, I think it does. Another really interesting subject, right? Because some endografts give more inflammatory reaction than the others. You notice if you do conversions, some endografts are easier to take out. Freeing the neck of the aneurysm is much easier with certain endografts than with others. The inflammatory response from the body towards the foreign body is definitely different from graft A to B. So that may make a difference in this as well. There was actually a paper published in JVS in 2008, which associated Dacron endografts with greater sac regression rates compared to PTFE, but I'm not sure it would be applicable now over a decade later. No, I'm not sure either. And especially because I, I don't know this publication by heart, but 
when it was published in 2008, it may actually have something to do with the Gore endograft, their original one that kind of missed an extra layer of PTAD. Those ones were growing much more than the ones afterwards. So if they had those in their analysis, I, I can understand. I'm not entirely sure if Dacron gives you more shrinkage than PTV in general. I, I think it really depends. Some graphs do, some don't. Okay, now to ensure or enhance the long-term durability of EVAR, what can we do nowadays? And now that we're talking about SAC regression or SAC stability or SAC progression, can we really influence SAC behavior or, or just watch it? Well, that, that's probably the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> <laughs> So one is, I mean, everybody likes sex shrinkage. So we should aim for a lot of sex shrinkage because it will ease our minds. It will give comfort to the patient and it will slow down our surveillance programs. Whether we can influence the findings that we just talked about, that patients with a shrinking sex actually live longer is unclear, remains to be seen. So it's an interesting thought. Can we get patients that are on the line of a stable sex? Can we do something to get them on the survival line of the patients that have a shrinking sac? If it's biology, if it's genetics, the patients will never skip lines, right? But we don't know that. So as long as we don't know it, I think we should aim for it to get as much sac shrinkage as possible. Whether we can influence that, I'm not sure. And whether graph material and endographs make a difference, I don't know yet. Interesting to realize that um, we are, well, more than in the beginning stages of defining an RCT, where we will do a head-to-head comparison of different endographs. We will randomize them to either endograft A or endograft B, and we will just follow them for a couple of years and see whether it makes a difference in general, whether it makes a difference in sex shrinkage, and possibly whether it makes a difference in secondary interventions and survival. That would be the ultimate study to see whether there is true differences in endograft and results of endografting. And the trial is very, very likely to happen. So we're working on the final stages of the protocol Funding seems to be in order already. So this may actually happen within a year or so. Very exciting. I'm super excited that an RCT like this is going to happen. That's a great scoop for a podcast. Thank you very much. Well, we're definitely uh, looking forward welcome. to that. <laughs> so thinking about um, maybe influencing this future SAC behavior, what do you think of intraoperative embolization of the aneurysm SAC at the index EVAR, precisely to prevent type 2 or type 5 endoleaks? Yeah, that's a great subject as well, Melina. You know, history repeats itself, right? So this was done years and years and years before, just like preemptive coiling of lumbers and IMA at the same procedure just before you put in the endograft. It has never been proved to be beneficial. And now we just try it again with different materials. So I'm not sure if this will be the holy grail. Active sec management is an interesting subject at the moment because it's starting all over again. Either a French group that has designed a graft called the Harry graft. Well, it's not the real name, of course, but everybody will probably know what I mean. And all those hairs in the sac are very thrombogenic. So what they try to induce is instant thrombosis of the sac. Other groups are trying to put in coils, plugs, endotrash, as you can say, with the same idea to make the sac thrombose immediately and completely. The problem is that it will always be in an enormous amount of over-treatment because the vast majority of patients don't need it. And I mean, way over 90%, maybe even close to 99% of the patients don't need it. And it's going to cost a lot of money. 
So recently I talked to one of the PIs of this study that do active sac management and they managed to put in 80 plugs in one patient. So you put in an endograft and an 80 plugs in the sac to get it from both. Uh, how can that ever be cost effective? The concept is fantastic. I really enjoy listening to that and we learn from it, but that is very unlikely to be common practice, right? So what we've seen so far with this active sac management using coils, glue, endo trash, whatever, is that they usually shrink a little bit more. They usually don't suffer so much from type 2 endo leaks, but you have to remember that the majority of patients react the same after simple endograft implantation, right? So the endpoint should not be thrombosis of the sac or presence of type 2 endoleak. The endpoint should be, is this patient better off after five or 10 years? So are there less secondary interventions? Is there less sacro? Is there less ruptures? And that asks for really big studies and not just a single center, you know, 20 versus 20 kind of study. That will not teach us whether it's useful or not. But it's coming up again, and I look at it uh, in great interest. I'm not part of these studies because I think it will always be tremendous overtreatment. And what about endoanchors to um, improve the proximal seal? Well, Melina, that's a really interesting concept, isn't it? If it turns out that we can indeed improve the seal by using endoanchors, that would be a fantastic adjunct, probably to be used in every one that you think a very durable seal is necessary. The evidence supporting it is not that large at the moment. There's not that much going on, but that is just a matter of time because they're used and they are definitely looked into and people do research with it. So that will come. Again, very interesting concept. Remains to be seen whether we're going to use it big scale or only on a you know case-to-case decision. In the line of what you're talking about, and thinking about big trials and big numbers, statins have proved to significantly reduce late mortality after aneurysm repair. There are a few small studies published in 2012, 2014, and 2020 that suggest an independent impact of statins associated with increased sac regression and resolution of type 2 endoleaks. However, another study published in 2017 found no association. Any thoughts on this? Well, yeah. Some things are kind of impossible to to explain, right? So why would statin use have anything to do with type 2 endoleaks? It's very hard to believe. On the other hand, statin use in general for our cardiovascular patients have proven to be beneficial and probably make you live longer. So maybe the way they act is maybe the same as what we see with patients with sac regression and then living longer than if you don't have that. So it goes into the biology of the patients and not so much into the aneurysm and aneurysm treatment. The problem with these really large trials that we see in medicine, like statin use, like some sort of, you know, aspirin versus clopidogrel, they all have findings with patients, you know, groups, patient groups, like 10,000 or so. And then a couple of years later, someone finds something completely different, usually 180 degrees different. It's hard to change your practice on the basis of some studies say yes, some studies say no. I tend not to react too much on those results except that all my patients are on stents, but that's another reason. <laughs> yeah, that's the cardiovascular prognosis right, of our patients right, right. as a marker of cardiovascular disease. Yeah. We have covered a lot of ground. So to wrap up, any final comments or a take-home message you would like to share with our listeners? Well, the, the main issue was how do we define success of EVO treatment, right? And we discussed that um, it should be probably more than prevention of rupture. 
We also discussed that sex regression turns out to be a really important endpoint. Maybe because you live longer, although we don't understand why that is. But in general, it is very beneficial if patients see their sex shrink. If you can influence that positively, that will always be good news. And whether that is with active sex management or improving the seal with endo anchors or find any adjunct procedure that results in more sex shrinkage is very beneficial for the patient, maybe because he lives longer, but most certainly because you can ease down our quite ridiculous and stringent follow-up programs, surveillance programs. So sex shrinkage is a new paradigm. It deserves all the attention from us. And I think we should try to have the sex shrink as much as possible. And if we have to do something extra for it, it may be worth our while. Thank you so much for joining me today. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you in this podcast. Pleasure was mine, Melina, as always. Thanks. I hope you out there listening have enjoyed this interview as much as I have. Remember, all Vascular Forum podcasts are available open access in SoundCloud, Spotify, the Vascular Forum webpage, and the ESVSE library. And soon, in Apple Music, we'll let you know about this. New material coming up soon. Keep tuned. Have a great week. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.